Well, hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Fully Automated and Occupy IR Theory podcast. Well, it has been a bit of a dry spell around here on Fully Automated, and apologies for that. Uh, I've been busy. Uh, our last uh, guest on the show was uh, Daniel Dudney. He was talking with us back in February about space expansionism and planetary geopolitics. Uh, since then, uh, I've been busy uh, working uh, not only on my teaching, but finishing an edited volume uh, with uh, my good friend Adam Fishwick of De Montfort University over in the UK. Uh, we hope to have him as a guest on this show coming up pretty soon uh, to talk about this exciting uh, edited volume we've been working on and which has just come out from Pluto Books. It's called Post-Capitalism. And uh, we'll have more to say about that in future episodes. But um, but for this episode, just to help us uh, get things back on track around here, I want to introduce you to a very special guest, KMO. Uh, KMO is the host of the venerable at this stage podcast, The Sea Realm. Uh, he is also a cartoonist and author of the book Conversations on the Collapse. KMO is something of an unusual guest, I think, for this show. He's not exactly a leftist, uh, but uh, he and I had the good fortune to meet uh a few weeks ago, I have lately been involved in a uh, clubhouse meeting room uh, that takes place every Wednesday at 1230 Central Time uh, called the Science Fiction and Politics Clubhouse. Uh, KMO happened to stop by that uh, clubhouse space uh, a few weeks ago, and uh, we've uh, maintained a communication since then and uh, quickly found we have been moving in similar circles. Uh, we follow a lot of the same feeds. Uh, we are tuned into a lot of the same podcast shows. So, uh, and we have some some overlap in our social networks. So, based on that coincidence, we found ourselves talking a lot lately about our mutual interests. And uh, I was fortunate and privileged to be invited on KMOs podcast the sea realm a few weeks ago uh, to talk about fully automated luxury communism uh, you can find that if you search for c-realm um, in patreon or on uh, apple podcasts or wherever you find your uh, podcasts so um what can we say about KMO? Um, Doug Lane, uh, if, if we read uh, KMO's bio, uh, there's a great quote from Doug Lane, who is a former guest of this parish and uh, famously the creator of the Diet Soap uh, podcast and also the main host of the Zero Books podcast. Uh, I, I like this turn of phrase. Uh, Doug describes KMO as once a winner in the capitalist game. He had high-tech dreams and plenty of ambition, but somewhere along the line, KMO dropped out, spent what he had, and started over in a simpler way. 
No longer rich, and no longer so enamored with the technocratic fantasies of the prevailing order, he squeaks by in this world while seeking another. More than anything, KMO is a broadcaster and interviewer who has a gentle and amiable way of challenging and inspiring interesting conversations with authors, artists, psychedelic gurus, sociologists, NASA scientists, economists, and more on his weekly podcast called The Sea Realm. Well, I couldn't really describe KMO better than that. Um, KMO certainly is a, a broadcaster and interviewer uh, with a gentle and amiable way about him. And I think you're going to see that shine through uh, in this discussion. Um, we're going to talk about uh, my appearance on his show. He has some um, firm, uh, I think, but uh, seriously thought through uh, views um, rebutting my own uh, on fully automated luxury communism. Uh, you're going to hear us talk about uh, Grimes's recent antics on TikTok. You may know she uh she being Grimes. Grimes put out a video recently. Uh, she's um, uh, curious lately in fully automated luxury communism, it seems, and the role of AI in helping us to achieve that. Um, there has been continued conversation and reaction to that in online circles. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that, what she gets right, what she gets wrong. Um then the conversation is going to move into talking about PMC ideology, uh, the potential difficulties of uh, that, that are faced by PMC culture now that, as Thomas Frank has put it recently, uh, we are sort of seeing the mainstreaming of Wuhan lab leak theory in terms of coronavirus, but that, you know, coming on top of an already damaged credibility from the weapons of mass destruction debacle in Iraq and what is rapidly a complete dematerializing case uh, that Russia hacked the uh, US election in 2016. So where do we stand with with, with that today? Um, it's kind of one of those things where, uh, as Lenin put it, and as, as Ben Burgess likes to rephrase it, um, you know, there, there are decades when you fuck around and weeks when you find out. And I think we seem to be living through one of those moments right now where the, uh, the, the sort of, um, the, 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 dizzying uh, collapse of modern um, epistemology, uh, for want of a better phrase, um, is really gathering pace. So uh, staying with that theme uh, through uh, the end of the show, uh, you're going to hear us switch to talking about our shared favorite topic, and that is the topic of science fiction. And we are going to talk about um, elite overproduction. Uh, we are going to talk about um, the rise of PMC authoritarianism um, in terms of science fiction, uh, Star Wars, Star Trek, you name it. Uh, it's all going to be in here. So I'm really delighted to have this opportunity to welcome someone like KMO to the show. Uh, it's a little bit out of our normal fishing uh, pond, uh, but uh, KMO has uh, a, a, a long history uh, talking and thinking about these kinds of things. He is a great guest to kind of help us get back on track around here. And um, as I will kind of detail at the end of the episode, uh, we have some great episodes already recorded coming up over the summer. 
uh, fully automated is not dead. <laughs> Famous last words, right? Um, but no, seriously, we, we have some great stuff coming up uh, in the coming weeks. You can look out for uh, the return of Chairman Mo. Uh, the Columbus Collective. Uh, they're going to be joining us to chat about Adam Curtis's uh, latest documentary, uh, Can't Get You Out of My Head. And then uh, we are going to have a um, panel session uh, later in the summer on Clyde Barrow's book about the lumpen proletariat. And uh, we will also have uh, Christine Louis Di Sully coming up uh, later in the summer as well. So plenty to look forward to around here. And with that all said, I will park myself here and pass you over to our interview with the one, the only KMO. Okay, so everyone, we have a very special guest with us uh, today. Uh, it is the one, the only KMO. Now, KMO is not someone I have known about for a long time, but he's someone who's on pretty good terms with some people in uh, the, the podcasting world, even the left podcasting world. And so um, I want to... Uh, assume that the audience of this show is about as unfamiliar with UKMO as I was <laughs> until about a few weeks ago. So let's just start with introductions. Pretend you've never met me before. Uh, who are you? Where are you coming from? And where do you feel you may be going to? All righty. I am KMO, which uh, those are my initials. And my name is not a secret. It's Kevin Michael O'Connor. But if somebody calls on the phone and they ask for Kevin, I know they're a stranger and they are to be regarded with suspicion. <laughs> very good. Very good. Yeah. Uh, I am currently in Vermont, in nice. rural southern Vermont in a little village called Bellows Falls, which uh, used to be prosperous. A hundred years ago, it was a very prosperous place from uh, timber. And it's full of these... Victorian single family homes that were large, you know, with carriage houses and servants quarters and whatnot. And mm. now they've all been broken up for most of them anyway, have been broken yeah. up into uh, multifamily dwellings. And we have the uh, Vermont distinction of having the highest percentage of rental occupancy in the entire state here. And a lot of the people in those rental units uh, have their rent subsidized by the state and People in the prosperous communities surrounding us consider this to be an armpit, but it is a historic armpit with some lovely old buildings, and uh, it's a very walkable place, and it's where I live right now, although I was so over it. I was just getting ready to move to Puerto Rico when the pandemic hit Oh gosh! shut down all such plans, yes. What was, if it's not a personal question, what was going to take you to Puerto Rico? Uh, I could live in a city, a proper city, for about the same money that I spend to live here in you know, the armpit of Vermont. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. We'll, 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 we'll leave it at that. So, um, I want to, uh, chat a little bit about how you came into my orbit, um, how, how we met. And then, uh, I, I'll say on my end, it sort of seems that 
we bumped into each other through something called Clubhouse. Mm-hmm. Um, lately, uh, with Giuseppe Porcaro and some other wonderful people like Sarah Shoker, um, we have uh, been doing a, a weekly Wednesdays at lunchtime, a weekly uh, clubhouse. That's 12.30 p.m. Central for anyone interested. Uh, if you want, just re- reach out to me on um, Instagram or Twitter uh, to uh, ask me for an invite on there. But it, it's a clubhouse session on the topic of science fiction and politics. Um, KMO, maybe I'm not exactly remembering the sequence of events here very well, but can you just tell me a little bit how you chanced upon that clubhouse room? Uh, Some of the listeners may be unfamiliar with clubhouse, so if you could say a little bit about what it is to you, that would be great. And uh, what makes you keep coming back to our clubhouse in particular week after week? (laughs) I will be happy to plug that room. Thank you. Please do. Yeah. <laughs> so um, uh, a frequent repeat guest on the Sea Realm podcast. I haven't spoken to him in years, actually, but uh, a long time ago, the Sea Realm podcast, which is my podcast, it used to be primarily about the impending collapse of industrial civilization due to peak oil. Okay. And one of the repeat guests that I had on um, time and again was a guy named Albert Bates, and Albert Bates runs the Eco Village Training Center at a place called The Farm, which is a former hippie commune in Summertown, Tennessee. But in the, I think, late 70s, they had a bit of a revolution and they deposed the, the cult leader and they switched the commune into a, a more sustainable economic structure. And it's now basically a gated retirement community for old hippies. But one of the few ways that young idealistic people can get onto the property is via the Eco Village Training Center. And uh, at a time when I was at loose ends in my life, um, Albert invited me to come and be the winter caretaker at the Eco Village Training Center uh, because he spends his winters in uh, Holbosch, Mexico, because it's warm. <laughs> and by the time I could get there, it was March and winter was nearly over. And he said, oh, don't worry about that. We'll find something else for you to do. And uh, we tried several different positions for me, none of which worked out. And eventually I just ended up being the uh, podcaster in residence, just interviewing the you know many spiritual seekers who uh, would you know stop at the farm and their, their pilgrimage across America looking for a better way to live. And uh, I was there for a couple of years. Albert provided me with a place to live and, you know, even a, a stipend of sorts so I could keep paying child support and not get thrown in jail. And uh, it was a it was a great opportunity. So, you know, I, I take I miss no opportunity to express gratitude to, to Albert Bates in a public forum. And just a few weeks ago, uh, he wrote to me and he said, hey, would you like to join Clubhouse? And in my you know, bitter cabbage smelling Android user way. I said, well, I don't have an <laughs> iPhone, so no. And he said, well, it's, it's, it's open to iPhone users now. And it's like, oh, well, okay, sure. Set me up. And uh, yeah, I got on there and I started poking around. And one of the, the first things that I was looking at was podcasting related stuff. Nice. It, well, no, it was dispiriting. Oh no. Um, yeah. I, I immediately joined this podcasting club, which had 63,000 members uh, which means there's 63,000 people <laughs> aspiring to be podcast hosts. That's wild. Yeah. When I first, like I started podcasting in 2006 mm-hmm. and for the first several years that I was doing it, if somebody asked me what I did, I typically had to explain to them what a podcast was. And I have not had to give that explanation in quite some time. Uh, but 
also, I was looking around for science fiction related groups and I found the sci-fi and politics group. And a neat thing about Clubhouse is that, you know, you can have a direct link to your your Twitter and your Instagram. That's right. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So I just popped through and I I think I sent you a a direct message on Instagram and you just happened to be online at the time and we just started chatting. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. So I I didn't know you from Adam at the beginning of that conversation. (laughs) And it was like 10 minutes later that we figured out that we had Doug Lane in common. That's it. Yeah. Doug Lane, the, uh, the, 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 it's like the Kevin Bacon effect for podcasters. Everybody's, everyone who knows him somehow shout out to Doug, if you're listening, not, not that I expect you to be, but if you are, it's, it's nice to, to have, you here with us too, in a way. Um, if you ask him, he will tell you that I'm the person that got him into podcasting. No way. That is way. a wild, <laughs> wild factoid right there. My goodness. Yeah, I love Doug. We've had Doug on the show very, very early on. He was a sort of a benefactor of this show uh, way back at the beginning. And um, I, uh, I am an avid, avid listener of Everything Zero Books even when we disagree about things, <laughs> which happens sometimes if you're listening, Derek Varn, I'm talking about you, buddy. Just kidding. Um, so, okay, uh, KMO, recently then uh, I was on your show, and this, of course, came out of our interactions on um, on, on the clubhouse. Um, we talked about uh, the left. We talked about fully automated luxury communism. We talked about science fiction. So I think we'll we'll maybe park science fiction for a minute because I have a funny feeling that a lot of today's talk is going to be about the <laughs> politics and science fiction stuff. But let's just quickly revisit uh, what we were talking about when I appeared on your show there uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, what was your, your take on that recording? We uh, We talked about fully automated luxury communism. Well, uh, first I'll say that I'm a charming individual and I'm uh, much easier to get along with in a voice to voice chat like this in, in print, I can come across as abrasive. Sure. uh, Join the club. Can't we all? Yeah. When this is all done, you can go and read my print response to your questions. Oh no. uh, (laughs) (laughs) I should have done that. I should, I wish I'd known those existed. (laughs) Okay. Very good. Well, I just got them posted a few minutes before you called, actually. So ah, well then. They, they haven't been up long. And they're they're actually behind a paywall right now, just because that's the default setting on my Patreon. But I'll kick them out to, you know, being publicly available. Okay. Done here. Very good. Very good. Um, but, you know, you asked me what you thought about um, your presentation of fully automated luxury communism. And my response really is, it sounds like just another name for a post-scarcity society, which Mm -hmm. is a society where material production is cheap and easy enough that nobody ever needs worry about not having enough of whatever, food, medical attention, shelter, clothing, transportation, whatever. It's, it's, it's not a problem. Um, For me, putting communism on there doesn't make it any more attractive you know, there's there's nothing positive that I see that communism brings to the table that's not already there in just plain old garden variety post-scarcity. And in fact, communism for, you know, non-Marxists has this tinge of uh, authoritarianism to it. And, you know, communist regimes, you, you can't deny the ones who have called themselves communists have been pretty reliable in fully automating uh, mass murder. You know, in, in selecting people who think the wrong thoughts or say the wrong things and uh, systematically shipping them off to unpleasant places from which they do not return. And uh, I don't 
you know, I don't want that as any part of my post-scarcity fantasy. Sure, sure. I can I can understand that. We had, of course, uh, the pop star Grimes um, uh, tweeting out, uh, uh, well, I, th- I think it was a TikTok actually uh, there a few days ago. Um, she, uh, of course, is the partner of Elon Musk. And she was talking about how artificial intelligence, AI, um, will sort of lead inevitably to a kind of communism of sorts. Um, do you have any sympathy with that, with the, that, that sort of use of the word communism? It, it sounds like maybe you don't, but I just wondered what your reaction was to what she was saying. Well, first, let me say that I first became aware of Grimes just this past Sunday. Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> you were there. This was in the real-time epistemology club, which mm-hmm. is my new room on That's Clubhouse. right. That's right. That's right. You can give and, that a shout uh, out too if you want. Yeah, there it is. Real-time epistemology club or RTEC. RTEC on Clubhouse. Yep. And uh, I didn't, didn't, I had never heard of Grimes before. I didn't know that uh, Elon Musk even had a girlfriend, although, you know, obviously <laughs> a guy with that much money is going to have at least one. <laughs> at least um, one girlfriend. Yes. So... I, I I thought that the backlash against her was ridiculous. Mm-hmm. You know, I could easily cut her enough slack. This is a short, very informal video that she did. Uh, I'm not sure what the context was, if it was TikTok or, or what, but um, it it wasn't a big deal. Yeah. And, you know, I, I understood her to be talking about communism as just, you know, a, a recognizable stand-in for a post-scarcity society, which I think is is kind of a geeky term of art. I think more people are familiar with the idea of communism than they are with post-scarcity. Um, so I, I had no problem with what she had to say. A lot of people had a big problem with the fact that, you know, she runs in a very exclusive, uh, well-appointed, well-taken-care-of, you know, oligarchic sub, subgroup of people at the very top of society. And um, I do have a problem in general with techno-utopians who are also billionaires who say, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's coming to everybody soon. Really, pretty soon everybody gets to live like I do. So it's not a problem that I get to live this way now and most everybody else doesn't because it's coming. Mm-hmm. Just, just chill. And I don't have much patience for that argument, but I don't. She seemed innocent to me. And, you know, yeah. maybe because she's young and female and cute, but uh, I'm willing to cut her a fair amount of slack. One of the things I thought was funny about the backlash towards her, especially from the left, uh, was the fact that it seemed to paper over what I have always found to be a relatively sort of central and, you know, even common sense uh, pillar of basic Marxism, uh, which is the idea that, uh, you know, capitalism produces its own gravediggers. And that, uh, you know, as Marx sort of outlines in, in, in a couple of different places, but principally the Grundrisse, um, you know, as uh, machines develop the ability to work themselves and labor becomes no longer necessary, we call this today automation, um, as this takes place, uh, you know, wages come under tremendous pressure and eventually, you know, kind of you reach a breaking point where people realize, wait a minute, you know, the, 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 we can't really afford stuff anymore. And the reason why we can't afford stuff anymore is because 
um, you know, the, 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 the value system, which the, which, which was premised on people having wages has, has broken down. Right. And so in that sense, then there is a kind of a kind of an inherent breaking point where communism, we can call it a democratic communism, if you want to, you know, I know, I know you're not comfortable with the word, but whatever you do want to call it, I mean, it, it does seem to sort of uh, demand the existence of a wholly other form of political economy at that point, because capitalism depending as it does upon scarcity, whether it's real scarcity or artificially generated scarcity, it can't survive um, the, 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 the impact on wages that automation in the long run produces. I'm perfectly comfortable with communism, by the way. I think communism mm -hmm. is the, um, it's the political organization that human beings are evolved to operate in. Uh, I just don't think it works very well past 150 individuals. Okay. Okay. That's an interesting, well, I mean, we're going to have to figure that one out. I think <laughs> yeah, not, if, if Marx was with us, he would, he would be wanting us to say, well, you know, you better figure out a way to do it past 150 individuals uh, because uh, it's coming, right? Um, it, it would be the argument. And that's not to say that as a, in a boosterist way, that is just to simply sort of observe that, uh, you know, that, that, that point of contradiction. Um, if we, put any store in it, um, you know, whether it happens in a hundred years, 200 years or a thousand years, um, eventually machines obliviate the need for human labor and, and, and a capitalist economy can't handle that. There's just no way for anything to have any value if there's no wages for people to, to, you know, and I mean, when I say value, I mean, exchange value are, uh, not certainly not use value. Um, Okay, but uh, so so I don't know if there was anything more you wanted to say on that. Um, uh, just that the fully automated part also was frustratingly vague. You, you didn't seem to to want to talk much about the technical implementation of it. Um, yeah, I mean that that's fair enough. Um, I, I think the uh, sort of longer term shape of that is is going to be difficult to to understand. Uh, the cybernetics aspect is is discussed by people who are more expert than me, um, you know, who, who of course, uh, are curious about the fact that one of the greatest criticisms of, of communism or, or socialism is that it doesn't know how to coordinate the allocation of production. And uh, there are people who contend that um, maybe not artificial intelligence, but certainly algorithmic intelligence um, can produce a, a much more um, a, a, a supple and nimble uh, form of allocation um, of productive energies than um, non-technologized uh, versions of socialism. Of course, you know, the, the Chilean example, CyberSign being kind of a primitive and early example, but one that studied quite a lot. People like Stafford Beer get talked about a lot in this kind of conversation. So if I uh, did not uh, have a very technical answer for that question, it's probably because it's not my, 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 my deep area of expertise, but there are people who are, who spend hours and hours online talking about these things. And, um, and it's and it's very interesting, but I think in the the present tense, the 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 cues that I take in this debate are more from people who try to popularize the concept of fully automated luxury communism. People like Aaron Bastani, um, who has a book out called "Fully Automated Luxury Communism," and this show is kind of named 
uh, partly in honor of that book. Um, and what he is sort of focusing on less than the cybernetics question um, is more the fact that in our own present economic moment, you can see already how technology is producing um, goods with a marginal cost beginning to approach zero. Now, of course, we've seen how that affected online music and, and digital goods and services, for example. Um, but uh, it has not always been so clear that it would have an impact in the world of the production of physical goods. Yet we have seen, as I think I mentioned this on your show, um, the emergence of, um, for example, vat-grown meat, uh, the rapidly decreasing cost of that is something I think we want to keep our eye on. Marxists always have this terrible habit of sort of predicting the end of things is just around the corner. And of course, capitalism always surprises them by finding a way to extend its longevity. And I don't want to (laughs) fall into that trap where I sort of make crazy predictions. But this is why KMO... Oh, I, I spent a good 10 years interviewing people uh, making crazy predictions, just <laughs> the opposite sort, you know, right, the right. collapse. But, but this is why I always sort of say and insist, and I and not to plug my own work here, because uh, this is an interview with you, and I'm going to shut up here in a minute, but um, I just have a, an edited volume out last week with uh, a colleague of mine, Adam Fishwick. Uh, he'll be a guest on this show pretty soon, I'm thinking. And uh, my chapter in that book is called A Defense of Fully Automated Luxury Communism. And one of the arguments I make in there is that, you know, when we get lost in this kind of like idea that fully automated luxury communism is just kind of like a tech bro naivete, I think we we miss the the the, the forest for the trees. The 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 point of fully automated luxury communism is 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 that it is a political project. It is something we are trying to 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 build. It is a rallying cry. It's not a prediction. It's um it's a call to arms. And so uh one very good corrective to the naive perspective on on Falk, as it's sometimes known, fully automated luxury communism, is Peter Fraser's book Four Futures, which predicts, I think, in a helpful way, four possible trajectories that we can go on from here. Uh, three of them aren't great. And one of them, well, is fully automated luxury communism. Call it what you will. But it's the only way we're getting out of this mess. Um, so anyway, listen. Um, do, you, do you know the name David Holmgren? I don't. David Holmgren is the co-originator of the concept of permaculture. Okay. Uh, and he's got a book, um, and it's a four futures sort of book as well. And I'm trying to remember. Oh, I was trying to remember the title. Now I'm actually just Googling the title. Well, tell you what, send me the link and I'll pop it in the show notes uh, before it goes to the feed. And um, that way listeners can click on it if they're interested. Uh, the book is called Future Scenarios. Future Scenarios. Okay, everyone. Yep. You heard it yep. from KMO. I'll pop, that in the, I'll pop that in the show notes for sure. And it's the ever popular two quadrant graph that creates, or, you know, two yeah. axis graph that creates four quadrants and that's the four futures. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe I, I don't know if, um, if Peter Fraze cites that it's been a long time since I've read Fraze's book, but it could be that there's a crossover there. Um, okay. KMO moving on here. Um, 
I don't know how this question will strike you, actually, but I, I think you've told me previously uh, that you have, at least at some stage in your life, identified as a conservative. Um, <laughs> and I kind of wanted to ask you how you today feel about political labels. Uh, do you have a kind of a political identity today? And if so, what is it? Um, and, and where do you think the winds of your intellectual fortune are blowing you currently? Okay, so I think it's not so much that I've identified as a conservative, although I have sympathy for conservatives. I think it's more that mm -hmm. um, other people have accused me of being a conservative. And there's a quote from uh, Robert Anton Wilson, which I don't have up in front of me, but it's something to the effect of a person goes from being a liberal to a conservative in 20 years without changing a single position. Right. And I mean, yeah, I'm 53 now, and that yeah. has definitely happened to me. You know, when I, I grew up mostly in Kansas City, Missouri, uh, Kansas City, for people who have never been there, has a very high uh, African-American population. There's a lot of black people there. Yeah, sure. The Kansas, Kansas City Art Institute is there um, right next to the uh, Rock Hill William Nelson Museum of Art. There's a very and then there's the Country Club Plaza which is one of the wealthiest shopping districts in the country because it's it's in Missouri, but it's right on the border with Johnson County, Kansas, which is a very wealthy, uh, you know, residential area. And then there's this other little area called Westport, all clustered around. The, you know, the actual downtown of Kansas City is far from this area. But and also in that area is the University of Missouri uh, at Kansas City. So as a, you know, a teenager and a guy in my early 20s, uh, lots of my friends, well, I went to a community college in that same part of town. Lots of my friends went to the university there. I spent a lot of time in that part of town, you know, hanging out with black people, gay people and weirdo druggies doing lots of LSD. And, you know, and I, I would get defensive and irritated with anybody who would express any sort of hostile criticism of any of those groups. So, you know, at the time, that was a fairly liberal position. But now, because I don't use, you know, the language of the woke scolds, of course, I'm a reactionary, fascist, homophobe, transphobe, you know, all, all the, you know, the labels. Um, and because I, you know, I used to be a pretty doctrinaire um, libertarian, voted for libertarian candidates, you know, for many years, uh, libertarians, American libertarians are usually described as being socially liberal and economically conservative. And I was, I was definitely both. Um, but I'm also sympathetic to conservatives because, you know, there's that, that aphorism, um, how's it go? Uh, liberals don't liberate and conservatives don't seem to conserve anything. <laughs> conservatives are, are not in favor of conservation, you know, in the environmental sense. Right. Um, but I think there are things which are worth conserving that in this in this moment, the Red Tribe is more focused on and they are in the right on certain issues, particularly around freedom of expression, freedom right. of speech, self-determination, yeah. autonomy. Uh, I think the left is absolutely broken on that score. Yeah. But when I say the left, I really just mean you know the overly represented like Twitter left. Right. Right. I was in a clubhouse discussion uh, very early on, like my first or second day on clubhouse. And it was one of these podcasting discussions. And somehow the topic of hate speech came up. Oh, it was a hate law, hate speech law that had just been passed in Canada and uh, it might apply to podcasters. And somebody, I mean, at first, the discussion, like the the character of the sci-fi politics room is very different. That's a very 
sort of grounded and open and honest sort of vibe. But in the podcasting vibe, the, the podcasting rooms, everybody is on brand, you know, they've got their, their LinkedIn persona on, not their, not their Twitter persona, you know, not their Instagram persona. Uh, they've got their, their business minded persona on, and they're very careful. They're saying all the right things. And there was a few sort of token gestures at mouthing the platitudes about social justice. And then one guy just said, yeah, I don't, I don't really like having some bureaucrat somewhere decide, you know, what is hate speech and what isn't. And from that moment on, everybody else in the room is like, they breathed a collective sigh of relief. And there was a million different, well, not a million, but probably six or eight different iterations on, yeah, me too. And it was coming from black people. It was coming from women. You know, it was coming from all these marginalized people who were just, as soon as somebody gave them permission to break ranks with the woke, you know, the, the very thin line of what you're allowed to say, the thin path of allowable speech in online left culture, as soon as somebody said it's okay, you can step outside of that, everybody did. So I, I think that the fact that universities and the HR departments of the big tech companies, which have, have this newfound, very outsized, very uh, penetrating power over people's lives, particularly their ability to communicate with one another, uh, I think that really overrepresents the, the scope. Right. You know, it, it overrepresents the saturation of this very authoritarian, primarily leftist and you know, leftist, I would say, in the the sense that Theodore Kaczynski used that word in his manifesto. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. leftist mm-hmm. psychological type. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that you know that leftist voice is very big right now, but it is artificial. I, I so think. <laughs> this is maybe a good uh, transition to another question then, because I'm curious what you think is driving uh, this. You know, within the left, and I and I. I I imagine within the right as well, but certainly within the left, there is newer attention uh, nowadays to concepts like the rise of the professional managerial class, uh, the sort of uh, yawning chasm that exists today and which was attested to by, of course, the the results of the 2020 election, the, the, the rural urban divide. Um, the fact that, for example, 20% of African-American men voted for Trump, uh, whereas, you know, people in the sort of um, roughly middle class income bracket almost you know, overwhelmingly voted for for Biden. Uh, these people, are, of course, mostly college educated. Um, they um, have college educated uh, priorities, but... They are a very anxious bunch. They are worried about losing uh, their class prestige. They're losing, worried about losing their material class position, which, of course, is why I think the prestige aspect is being so heavily focused on right now. Like, why, why is Twitter so intense? It's because ultimately, sociologically, economically, this is a mechanism for ensuring that the wrong people do not get access to the trough. So, um, uh, you know, so, so, you know, these sorts of debates, and I know you've said you're not sort of universalizing the the left here, but there does seem to be a fairly um, meaningful division within the left currently between a more Marxist materialist left that is kind of interested in having that conversation about the overproduction of intellectuals. That's something that's been going on since the time of, uh, of Marx himself. Um, uh, but, uh, it, it, I, it was Marx's son-in-law, uh, Lafargue, Paul Lafargue, who indeed I think is the first ever 
source that I've ever seen mentioned of this idea of an overproduction of intellectuals or an overproduction of academics. Uh, so that this is a concern that's even going back to the 19th century. Uh, that's a citation in Clyde Barrow's book about the lumpen proletariat, if anyone's interested, by the way. But but so, so this conversation has been going on for a long time, but I think obviously gains a new kind of intensity in the 1970s with Barbara Ehrenreich's uh, work uh, 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 and John Ehrenreich's work on uh, the professional managerial class, or PMC as we use the term now. And then re more recently, again, we've seen Catherine Liu's book just come out a, a couple of months ago on uh, the professional managerial class. And of course, there's other volumes being written in and around this topic as well. Angela Nagel talks a little bit about it in Kill All Normies. And um, they, they uh, you know, well, I'll pass the mic over to you, but, you know, um, what, what do you think what, what what do you find persuasive as uh, as a sort of a sociological account of how this um, identity um, policing moment has arrived in our in our economic and sociological scene? <laughs> I'm afraid my answer is is simplistic. Um, all of this hand-wringing and, and gnashing of teeth over very minuscule uh, deviations from ideology on the topics of race and gender and, you know, whatever the trans thing is. This, this is all just cover to say we are absolutely refused to talk about class. We absolutely will not engage in a conversation about the disparities in outcomes between the professional managerial class and their masters and everybody else. We're not talking about that. Point blank, period. Shut up. You're not allowed to talk about it. You fucking racist. Basically, if you yeah, want to talk about yeah. class, you are a racist, patriarchal, homophobic, fascist, you know, the whole the whole litany. Mm. They just won't talk about economics. Period. And it's interesting that, that you know, the, the way, in fact, because a lot of them will pay lip service to the idea of being a Marxist. And that's an interesting aspect of this. They'll say, look, we have to kind of approach this intersectionally. Like, and actually, I mean, it's worth it's worth reminding ourselves that the original theory of intersectionality didn't really make much of an account of economic uh, marginalization, to be honest. But whatever. And, and to the extent that it did, it sort of reduced working class uh, positionality to itself a kind of a, an identity position. So, you know, ontologically, it's kind of kneecapped itself from the get-go there. But the, the the point being that once you start to sort of prioritize, it, it, it's really where you get in trouble is once you start to sort of prioritize economic um, um, policies or economic reforms, uh, economic changes, as being themselves essential um, kind of fixes to many of the ailments um, um, of racism, for example, uh, that, that's, I think, where you get in trouble because it seems that the, 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 the specific kind of um, foothold that identity politics sort of has is very much to do with things like unconscious bias and so the, 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 the normative agenda there is to address thought, right? You know, to, to, to sort of address our problems as if they are fundamentally and everywhere to do with this kind of stuff that Robin DeAngelo does uh, with her, her book on white fragility. You know, that, that, that you know, what, what has to be addressed is a kind of, um, 
a uh, an, an original sin of white perspectivalism and it cannot really be redeemed of course it just must be constantly uh, purged it's like um it's like you know raised as i was as a good catholic boy i know very well how this works you know it's it's to do with catechisms and the need to constantly repeat them to 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 do your penance and to do it again and to come back the next week and do it again there's no real solution whereas it seems to me that um, what's what's really been lost sight of here is 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 notions of say structural racism, which is not really to do with unconscious bias at all. It's to do with the fact that there are economic dynamics at work, which, for example, um, property owners are less likely to rent their houses to to black people, not necessarily because they themselves are racist, but because there are actual market pressures on uh, uh, at work. Uh, and 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 market tastes at work, which incentivize them not to sell their houses to black people, and so that seems to me to be much more of a a market based uh, problem, which needs to be addressed through solutions within the marketplace than than any form of unconscious buying. You can train all the unconscious bias out of a landlord uh, or a property owner, and he will still feel. A financial incentive if he's a if he's a middle class guy or girl uh that person is going to feel much more of an incentive to think about their bottom line they're worried about sending their their their, their kids to college they're going to be much more focused on their bottom line that they're going to be focused on um you know what what's what's racially uh appropriate or not and maybe i'm getting myself in hot water there but i mean it just seems uh that, that, me, that's <laughs> yeah it seems to me to be kind of a no-brainer uh, which is why I kind of get get a little um, f- frustrated, I suppose, myself with um, with, with these kinds of um, t- trends within the left. So I, 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 I basically I think I agree with you on a lot of this. Um, okay, so that's one facet then um, of online culture today, and. Um, it seems to me that maybe there's more that we can pick out there if we're kind of going to stay with um, the, the, the topic of the PMC and their power, their sources of yeah, power, me, KMO. Please go let ahead. Let me elaborate on my previous answer. You know, I, I said uh, it's the we absolutely refuse to talk about, you know, issues of class, issues of uh, how we used to have. We used to have widespread prosperity in the United States, and now we don't. But that's that's half of it. I mean, that's the institutional half. That's the New York Times. That's the Washington Post. That's CNN. We're not going to talk about any populist issues. And in fact, if you say the word populist, we are going to identify it as the deplorables and the mega crazies and the QAnon people. That's mm-hmm. all populism is. We will not admit that there's any the Bernie Sanders. Who? We don't know who you're talking about. Shut up. We're not talking about any of that. I'm very enthusiastic, though, because. You know, Crystal Ball and Sagar and Jetty, they just left the hill. That's right. They started started their own show. It's on YouTube, but there is a podcast version. And the podcast version in its first week has eclipsed yeah. the New York Times podcast and the the reviled, from my perspective anyway, Pod Save America <laughs> podcast. You're not allowed and to use those are, words on this show, KMO. Oh, God. I hate <laughs> that show. Um and they are the number one podcast in the politics category on uh, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher Podcasts. It's amazing. It's, yeah. it's wonderful. So part of it, part yeah, of go it, for it. Is, is the institutional protection. But there's also um, 
the useful idiots who follow it because they just love to go to a stoning. You know that mm-hmm. that uh, scene from Monty Python and the Life of Brian. <laughs> you know where Brian and his Jehovah. mom go to. They go to buy rocks to to go to the stoning and they don't know who's being stoned. They don't have any reason to hate the person who's about to be executed, whose execution they are going to take part in. They don't know the person, you know, the person who sells them the rock says, oh, yeah, local boy. You know, (laughs) he's he's, he's talking about it like it's a sporting event. And it very much is. And, you know, we could go on and on about um, John Ronson's book. So you've been publicly shamed. You know, there is that psychology of, oh, the pylon. It's like, oh, there's a scapegoat. They're, oh, they're ripping him to pieces. Oh, wait, don't kill him yet. Let me get a piece. Let me get in on that. And, you know, there's a very um, vicious aspect of, of the human psychology that I think people who are of, as Thaddeus Russell would say, of college, mm-hmm. you know, they think they're so evolved and uh, refined that they don't have that in them. And the fact that they deny that it even exists in them gives it free reign to express itself in really ugly, vicious ways that, you know, the people doing it refuse to acknowledge. It's a but, classic yeah, form it's, of in-grouping, really, you know? Yeah, it, it's just a bunch of fun, you know, to, to tag, just pick some random person in your own group, because in, invariably the people being ripped apart are trying to be good leftists, you know, or at least good liberals. And yeah, it's fun. It's fun to rip them apart. It's, it's yes. fun to like send people to the airport to be on hand, to take pictures of what's her name, Justine Sacco, as she gets off the plane, you know, realizing <laughs> that her bad joke, which she sent out to less than 200 Twitter followers has, has aroused the bloodlust of, you know, tens of thousands of people who want to be on hand to witness her suffering. Right. You know, as as she realizes the depth and the intensity of the trap into which she has stepped, you know, so there's there's just a really nasty psychology behind, you know, the the volunteer portion of the um, this this edifice of, you know, the professionals, the institutions, the institutional gatekeepers refusing to allow certain types of conversations to exist, you know, in mainstream media and then the people who enforce those same rules rules for very different reasons in social media. KMO, I wanted to, uh, before we move on to science fiction, I just wanted to quickly sort of um, cap this uh, discussion about the plight of the PMC, if, if that's what we can call it, uh, with, a, with a reflection, uh, by inviting your reflection on the state of online culture today. You know, re- I, I saw Thomas Frank recently arguing that... Um, the, effectively, the mainstreaming of of what we can call the Wuhan lab leak theory um, is a big deal and potentially has major ramifications for the legitimacy of the mainstream media. Of course, this would come on top of already the mainstream media having disgraced itself uh, with its uh, accounting for the weapons of mass destruction in, in Iraq, the lack thereof, but basically you know, basically kind of towing the, the the line of the Bush administration in the White House, um, that there were there were there were these WMDs. And of course, more recently, although some would still kind of d- defend this point, but I think, you know, um, falling hook, line and sinker for the idea that Russia hacked the uh, the, the 2016 election and stole the election on Vladimir Putin's behalf from Hillary Clinton and gave it to Donald Trump. Um, 
so so the the, the media hasn't uh, covered itself in glory in our lifetimes. <laughs> um, but um, to use the phrase of uh, what Katie Helper or no, it's it's Crystal that always says that in introducing that that segment of Rising on Saturday with Katie Helper, where the it's the media screw ups of the week, the media screw ups of the week, the media screw ups yeah. of the decade at this stage. <laughs> I mean, it just uh, it, it 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 seems to be a consistent drumbeat at this stage. So. Um, it strikes me that, you know, even two years ago, we were seeing uh, liberals quite confident that we were living in a, what well, what they called a post-truth moment. But in this whole time, there hasn't been a lot of self-reflection, I think, on the part of those same liberals whose connections with the PMC, uh, I think, cannot be understated. Uh, they are of that PMC class and their role as uh, gatekeepers of the prestige of that class cannot be gainsaid. So um, today... Uh, I think uh, what Thomas Frank seemed to be suggesting was that 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 uh, prestige is itself on the verge of collapse and that the Wuhan lab leak theory is basically the kind of final uh, straw here. Um, it would be <laughs> they're, they're, in, a, they're, in a rational society. So, so, so I wanted, yeah, but I wanted to ask you, like, g- given this kind of rapid acceleration of de- of collapse in prestige some people might even call this like a uh, you know t- to use the term in its proper sense you know an actual sort of indication of the fact that we are very much entering into a, a vertiginously postmodern moment um you know w- w- what are your thoughts as someone who is kind of uh, in your own way you know, a, a, a media personality of sort, a sort of a, 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 you know, at least active within sort of the the, the garage media sector, uh, a long time now. What do you? What's your assessment? What's your What's your moral compass telling you about this moment? Oh, I think I think we're pretty much in agreement. I mean, if I'm intuiting your question yeah. properly and, and the way you framed it, um, you know. As I say, the Crystal and Sagar, they start a podcast and within the first few days, they have eclipsed the, you know, the institutional voices, the institutional gatekeeper voices, which have massive corporate and political backing. Um, I, you know, the the audiences for mainstream uh, cable news, uh, Fox is the most popular, but their audience is very old. Their audience is dying sure off thing. by the day. Yeah. Um, but, you know, for CNN and MSNBC or CNBC, uh, their audiences are so small. You know, they pale in comparison to popular podcasters and YouTube personalities. And yet they wear suits and they have access to the White House press room. And, you know, they have the uh, the granted gravitas by the institutions for whom they are so obviously, you know, toady servants. And some people don't see it yet, but more and more people see it every day. And, you know, I'm, I'm a little, one of the things that bothers me, uh, I mean, there's so many things that bother me about the behavior of the online left, but, you know, their visceral hatred for Joe Rogan uh, is, <laughs> we should talk about me, that. Is we should so talk about telling. that. We should yeah. talk about that. You want to drill down on that for a second? Like, what's what's sure. uh, 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 because um, I've I've I'm I've I've been a little bit guilty of that. I'm not going to lie. I have a very good friend in Germany. He's probably going to listen to this show. So, Lee, uh, if you're out there, this is for you, baby. This is my uh, public recanting of of having said bad things about Rogan in the past. I, I I actually don't like everything Rogan says. I think some of it's a bit daft, but that's maybe not to say anything that 
serious about Rogan. I mean, he's an entertainer. I don't, I, I don't take my cues on him from him. I mean, he's a very interesting guy in terms of like observing where we are going in terms of things like Overton windows and whatnot. So like, Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily need Rogan to agree with me for everything, but what's your take? What, what, what do you think about, 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 uh, his, his popularity? So Joe Rogan, I mean, he's a comedian. Uh, briefly, he was an actor on a TV show, uh, talk radio was it? I never saw it, but, um, you know, I primarily got to know him as a commentator for the UFC. You know, to me, he is first and foremost, a, a fight commentator and he was excellent at it because he is himself a mixed martial artist, um, and had been doing it, you know, not mixed martial arts, but he had been in Taekwondo from an early age. So, you know, he was not, this wasn't a job. This wasn't a paycheck. This is a passion for him. And it's, and because he encountered such early success, I think, um, doing things that he loved, that that was just his modus operandi from there on out. I'm just going to do what I love. And what I love to do is talk to people. So I'm going to do a three fucking hour podcast every goddamn day. <laughs> it's wild, dude. It's wild. Yeah. I mean, if you it. wanted to listen to every one of his shows, that's, that's your hobby, you know, <laughs> that's your, that's your day job right there. <laughs> exactly. And, so and- I mostly take in, you know, clips of Joe Rogan uh, when something blows up or like I, I watched the full interview with Andrew Yang, the full interview with Bernie Sanders, full interview with Tulsi Gabbard. I mean, I was all about that stuff. But, you know, he is very self-effacing. He doesn't describe himself as smart. He, he wouldn't want you to have him be your political compass. Um, you know, if whenever there's a controversy, he always says the same thing. He says, I'm a fucking moron. I don't know anything. (laughs) Don't listen to me. I mean, if you want to hear jokes, listen to me. If you want to hear me talk to fighters, listen to me. Um, I have smart people on and I talk to them, but you know, listen to them, not me. Right. I don't know anything. Right. And he, he's genuine. That's, that's not an act that is not, you know, insincere self-effacing for, you know, strategic reasons. That's, that's just how he is. And he's unabashedly masculine. Mm-hmm. You know, he he does mixed martial arts. He goes hunting. Uh, he's on testosterone replacement therapy and he's open about it. You know, yeah. he, he's unabashedly masculine at a time when masculinity itself is something to be denigrated and something to be ashamed of and something to be denied um, in PMC circles. Yes. But normal people don't hold the value system of the professional managerial class. That's and right. there's a lot of them mm-hmm. and they like Joe Rogan. <laughs> <You know? So. laughs> yeah, they really do. And I, I actually, I, I like him uh, m- most of the time too, to be perfectly honest. Um, and he's not consistent because he's not an ideologue. Right. He doesn't so, have to be. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And when, when somebody is on his show and they're articulating a message, he'll riff with him. Yeah. He'll go with him. He'll say, yeah. I mean, they'll say something and he'll, he's, you know, trying to work it out in his head. He's like, okay, I can see how that makes sense here. Here's, here's an example yeah. of how that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And then tomorrow somebody else comes on with a completely different worldview and he does the exact same thing. And so, yeah, you can string together, you know, clips of, of Joe Rogan saying absolutely incompatible things, you know, one after another, but that's just because he's a normal person. He's not flogging a political ideology. Yeah. I, and he's being a gracious host. Yeah, I think I think so too. Uh, and and speaking of gracious hosts and gracious guests, um I uh, would be remiss if I did not at some point in our conversation uh, move to uh, give you some kind of space to talk a little bit about science fiction. 
it's <laughs> it's after all the thing that uh, connected us uh yes. kmo and uh i have found your uh commentaries uh very uh informative on our clubhouse these last weeks but more than that uh i have been just incredibly impressed by your breadth of science fiction reading um i just i guess i just simply want to ask you how is science fiction political for you and indeed how do you feel it shapes not just your politics but i think but politics in in general like like but 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 i think most importantly your politics well uh i will say i love science fiction and uh sometimes i'd like to but i cannot stop thinking about politics but i think it would be a very bad idea for me to let what i love about science fiction inform my politics i think that would be a very dangerous politics uh, i love the transformative aspects of science fiction you know the a book that i is one of the foundational books in you know if my personality were built out of books this is one very near the base it's blood music by greg bear 1983 1983 novel if you read it today it holds up great you know we were talking the other day in the um the clubhouse room about how you know one of the glaring things about science fiction from the past is that nobody has cell phones well they have cell phones in blood music. He doesn't call them cell phones, but they clearly play the role of cell phones and smartphones, in fact. Um, but, you know, in today's uh, techno-utopian lingo, we would say that blood music is a fictionalized version of a biotech singularity in which, you know, first one man is transformed. It, you know, it, at first he becomes super competent, you know, he gets... Uh, almost like superpowers. Uh, but then the, the intelligent cells that make up his body, they decide, you know, he is too small a vessel. They need to branch out. And they end up basically transforming the entire North American, all the, the biology and the North American continent into uh, the biological equivalent of computronium, you know, basically a, a substance which can sustain, um, you know, in computronium, it's, it's computation. But in this stuff, it's basically just a huge brain, all of the organic matter in the North American continent becomes a huge brain that sustains this thought universe where, you know, people can live their lives over and over again, go back in time, take different branches through, you know, potential lives that they didn't lead. And it's, it's all very transformational, but I think politics should not be transformational. I think politics should be very practical. I think it should be uh, incremental, um, you know, as much as I would love to see all the wrongs of the world righted tomorrow, I don't trust anybody with the power to do that. So, you know, institutions are imperfect, uh, but they need to be held accountable. And part of being them being held accountable is to do things deliberately. Does that strike you as an unusual uh, or strange position, uh, KMO? Because you know you're you're sitting here telling me in a, in in one respect you're kind of Edmund Burke. Um, and in other respect, saying that in your spare time, you like to le to read about like fictional universes where there are revolutions. I mean, is it is it what's what's going on there? Let me appeal to your intuition with this. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm not I'm not particularly religious, but God rest his soul. Uh, I absolutely loved, loved, loved the music of Prince. I love you and me both, buddy. 
Yeah. I mean, I still love the music. Happy birthday, brother. It was yeah. his birthday on, on June 7th there. That said, I don't think I would have enjoyed hanging out with him. Okay. So do I need to spell out the? Uh, yeah, the you rest do. Of it? You can't just okay. you can't just mention okay. Prince on this show, man. You're you you're 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 you stepped into my living room there. Right. <laughs> the, the fact that I love something in one aspect of my life doesn't mean that it's necessarily going to be beneficial to use that as a guide to a different portion of my life. Yeah, you know, that's a totally this, reasonable position. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was a, he was a, a, a he, he, uh, he was a strange brother, you know, he had some yeah. strange politics in some ways, Prince. I mean, I think his, his intuitions were libertarian, maybe even progressive in some ways. But um, I mean, my God, the, the man believed in, you know, the government was putting microchips in our heads and, mm-hmm. you know, chemtrails, chemtrails, all of these sorts of things. Yeah. yeah. The Illuminati, all of this stuff. Right. I remember, uh, there was a concert film for the album Sign of the Times. Oh, yeah. Oh, and, yeah. And uh, he, he fired like three different directors for failing to communicate with him telepathically. And then when the film did come out, it just said, directed by Prince. <laughs> <laughs> of course it did. Of course it did. Um, so so anything else on science fiction? I mean, I know you're, you're hugely read in science fiction. Um do you uh, uh, have a sense um, over the decades that you've been an active science fiction reader of how it has sort of symptomatically changed to reflect, um, you know, the, the changing world around you? Or, or do you think it maintains today a kind of um does it remain today a kind of a, an adventurous space where, where, where dangerous thoughts can be explored? How, or is it is it going the Hollywood route? I guess is what I'm trying uh, to ask. No, the woke scolds have definitely infiltrated print science fiction, uh, and and like superhero comics. Uh, it seems as any any domain that used to be the sort of exclusive haunt of male geeks uh, now has been turned inside out and upside down. And you know, it's it's as if the guys who used to retreat into that space because they weren't the jocks, you know, they weren't, they didn't have the money. They weren't good with women. This was their retreat. Uh, now it's treated as if this is some redoubt of just toxic masculinity and the, you know, the cleansing sunlight of, of social justice must be just, just scoured this thing, which, so, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot not to like for me in contemporary okay. science fiction. Okay. Um, and you know you, you really be, see it. what would be some of the worst examples or can do you have any off the top uh, of your mind star wars star wars is the worst example i mean the the, the new trilogy the the the, the yeah, sequel series as it were basically when george lucas sold the whole star wars the whole lucasfilm enterprise to disney um he appointed you know two people to like carry his vision into the future those two people were dave filoni and Kathleen, Kathleen Kennedy. Kennedy. Yeah. And Dave Filoni, I mean, he was the architect. George Lucas was the architect of the Clone Wars animated series, but Dave Filoni was his Padawan. And then when Lucas stepped away, you know, the very first thing that, that Disney did was they canceled that show. Right. That was day one. They canceled that show because it aired on the Cartoon Network and it was a very expensive show. So Dave Filoni retooled it and they came up with uh, Star Wars Rebels, which had a very lackluster first season. But at the end of the first season... Uh, a, a middle-aged Ahsoka Tano steps into the spotlight and suddenly things get good. Yeah, and There were right. three excellent seasons after yeah. that. 
Yeah. And that was the, that was the star Wars universe. You know, it's like for me, the, the prequel trilogy, all of that was just to provide conceptual design for star Wars, the animated, you know, star Wars, the clone wars, the animated series. And so Dave Filoni, he shepherded this, you know, this universe, the star Wars universe through what five years um, of, of the clone wars and then four years of rebels and then it comes time to release this sequel trilogy and they get J.J. Abrams to come in and do it. And it's as if neither J.J. Abrams nor Catherine, Kathleen Kennedy had seen any of the Dave Filoni world building that had gone on for a fucking decade. They didn't use any of it. It had nothing to do with this world that had been so carefully crafted. Okay, so there was one good film from my perspective that was Rogue One, but all the rest. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Absolute garbage. Then, then John Favreau, you know, uh, who had been directing films for Disney, you know, big films, technically sophisticated films, like, you know, the remake of The Lion King, Jungle Book, this sort of thing. He goes to Bob Iger at Disney and he says, look, this is not working. Uh, she's driving. Is this conjecture or do you know this no, happened? No, no, this, this is well documented. John Favreau is the executive producer. I mean, he's the showrunner on The Mandalorian. Right. So we get The Mandalorian, which is John Favreau and Dave Filoni. And here we have these stories told about this Mandalorian bounty hunter that are clearly set in this fully fleshed out Dave Filoni Star Wars universe. Right. <laughs> and it's a massive success. People love it. You yeah. see Baby Yoda everywhere. And what else comes out of this? This big, strong, powerful female character of Cara Dune. Yeah. And what does the Kathleen Kennedy faction do? They use <laughs> they social justice her. bullshit talking <laughs> points to portray her as a Nazi. And, yeah. and it was all in the service of destroying his yeah. Favreau, Dave Filoni version of Star Wars. Yeah, I agree with you there. I think what happened there was absolute pants and bullshit. Oh, I, I, I don't think um, it's Gina Carano. Yes, yes. Uh, she, I, you know, I, I, I probably would not agree with what she said, but I do not think that it rose to the level of any kind of um, cancelable offense. Uh, Particularly when compared with uh, her co-star and the things that he said. You know, he, he made all kinds of Nazi, uh, you know, tweets and things, but it was all in the service of a left-wing agenda. And, you know, his were much more egregious. But, yeah. Um, Pedro actually, Pascal. That's him. Yep. So, uh, no, I don't have Pedro Pascal's uh, offensive tweets committed to memory. But, but, but there I, were some I, 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 I genuinely don't know. What was he? Was he? Well, let's Google it real quick. You know, sure. Pascali Punk. Uh, Pedro Pascal, who plays the Mandalorian on Disney Plus, was not fired for his post on Instagram comparing Trump supporters to Nazis and Confederates. So here's here's a post. Okay, so what's what's the what's the 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 the, the, the can, can we what what had Carano actually said? Carano said, uh, I, I can't quote it verbatim. Let me find it. Jews were beaten in the streets not by Nazi soldiers but by their neighbors, even by children, because history is edited. Most people today don't realize that uh, that to get to the point where Nazi soldiers could easily round up thousands of Jews. The government first made their own neighbors hate them simply for being Jews. How is that any different from hating someone for their political views, stated Karana's post, which was a screenshot of someone else's Instagram post. But yeah, that's that's the verbiage that then was was paraphrased as 
being a conservative is just like being a Jew in Nazi Germany. So it wasn't her words, it was someone else's words. One of the posts mm -hmm. she shared compared to, compared today's divided political climate to Nazi Germany. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I think she's talking about how, um, I, I, I don't, I don't see that as a particularly fireable offense. It's very right. strange that someone would be fired for saying that. Well, again, Gina was not the ultimate target. The ultimate target was John Favreau and the success of the Mandalorian. She was trying to sabotage the Star Wars that was working. You know, so, oh, that she so could this continue. is Kathleen Kennedy. Uh, yeah. Yeah. This is a Kathleen Kennedy faction. Maybe not she herself, but, you know, Pablo Hidalgo and the other members of the uh, Kennedy, you know, Star Wars story group faction. Uh, they definitely have their online agents provocateur. Yeah. So let's let's step away from Star Wars for a minute. So she uh, talked about Star her, Trek. She also talked about her um, her um, her her um, pronouns. Uh, she had put um, beep bop boop in her yes. in her Twitter bio, uh, which people called out as transphobic, which is an absolute bullshit um, fucking remark, because even there are many trans People, I'm about to get my own show cancelled here, but I mean, uh, ContraPoints has been, for example, pretty uh, open on this, as have many other well-known trans per, uh, people that, uh, you know, it's not necessarily a good thing that we all go around uh, saying our pronouns, right? There's a lot of people who um, feel highly pressured by that, who, many of whom are among the trans community who are not ready to be public about their uh, status. And... Uh, this is just another kind of uh, ritual, uh, part of the catechism, uh, the various catechisms that we need to kind of perform um, publicly to announce ourselves as part of the well-heeled, um, socially trained members of the college-educated professional managerial class. Um, it is, of course, uh, a form of identity policing. And in that sense, I think Carano's point actually is not inappropriate, right? Like the the the, the idea that this is how in-group and out-group dynamics work and how tensions are built and and how effect, effectively we kind of engage in a sort of society-wise hazing ritual is not, is not entirely unfounded. You don't have to comment on that because you'll get canceled KMO and I'll, I'll oh, take I'm, I'm uncancelable. I mean, I Are start you? from a canceled position. <laughs> oh, okay. Very good. Very good. Very good. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll edit that all down so that it comes across as a more coherent point, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, um, okay. Sorry. Did I talk over you on something there or did we want to move to well, wrap? Um, I mean, if we have more time to talk about plenty how, of time, plenty of time. Okay. So the other example, you know, the other really obnoxious example of how, um, yeah, I guess, feminist crusaders have infiltrated formerly, you know, male spaces and said this has to be done differently is Star Trek Discovery. Oh, Jesus Christ. I hate that show. Oh, my God. You know, it's in so the second nauseating. Season, yeah, the second season, the first couple episodes, it seemed as if they were directly responding to criticisms from the first season. Right. So Anson Mount, as uh, Captain Pike, comes onto the Enterprise, not the Enterprise, onto the Discovery. <clears throat> and he says, hey, it's awfully dark in here. Let's turn on the lights. <laughs> so, you know, the first season, <laughs> the first season, the bridge had been so dark. Yeah. Everything was dark. And, you know, there's this very diverse cast of people on the bridge 
but none of them played any significant role in any of the storylines from the first season. That's right. So it's like, That's hey, right. it's awfully dark in here. Let's let's turn the lights on. And, and, and who are all you people? Let's just do a round of introductions, shall we? <laughs> you know? So I, I loved that. And I, yeah. I was so willing to give them the benefit of the doubt. And because I hated that first season. Oh, did I hate that first season? You didn't like but the first I thought, season. I, I thought it was a little I think I think now retrospectively it holds up a lot better than the subsequent stuff. Well, <laughs> I don't plan to watch it again. To uh, I thought the Klingons were compare. were portrayed in an interesting way. Oh, that's the thing I hated the most. Really? Okay. Yeah, <laughs> but in the second season, you know, that's this is the one where Spock plays a role. So he's off on some vision quest in place. So when when Mount comes over, um, or you know, Captain Pike comes over to the Enterprise, he, he comes over with his current science officer, who is you know, there, there's basically no white men on the show. That's, you know, by design. So the, the replacement for Spock is this smarmy, know-it-all white guy. And so he shuts down Burnham at one point or says something disrespectful to her and say, okay, that's it. He's disrespected a woman of color. He, he has to die. He has to die. But before he dies, we're going to humiliate him. We're going to have an alien sneeze snot all over him in the, um, in the turbo lift. And then, you know, in a later scene in that same episode, He's going to get killed. He's going to say some smart ass thing and then boom, he's dead. And then they never mention him again. There's no mention of him ever again. He's there to be a smarmy white dude, to disrespect a woman of color and to die for it. And they never mention him again. Later in the, the, the season, there's this woman on the bridge who was in an accident and she's, you know, very cybernetic. Mm-hmm. She looks like a robot. Mm-hmm. She's never played any right. significant role in the film. In fact, she's played by a different actress in the second season. Ah, yes. Yes. Yeah. The character gets killed and they have this 20 minute eulogy for her. Yeah. It's, yeah and, and the audience is like, sorry, why should I feel something for this person? Who, who is this person? And so at the very end of the season, when they're all going into the future together and it's like volunteer only, this character we've never seen before steps forward and say, I'll go into the future with you. And it's the actress who played the robot lady in the first season. No way. They wanted to keep the actress around. So to kill her off, they recast the role. Oh. And then they had the original actor step in in a different role. Funny. Yeah, and then and then she still never did anything significant in the third season. <laughs> the show is just so inept at every level. It just doesn't work as a TV show. It doesn't work really as much of anything, but most importantly, it does not work as Star Trek. So I'm I'm so ready for this era of Star Trek to be over. <laughs> yeah, well, hopefully we've got some good stuff coming. Um, I thought. Picard was okay. It could have been a bit better, but but Picard. but Discovery just in general. After well, Picard the first... was such a mess. It, it yeah. Clearly, you know, they tried to make something in the editing room that they didn't that they failed to capture on the set. You know, they had yeah. such awful yeah. pacing issues. Yeah, and then again, the like we're we're just going to destroy Discovery. You know, retroactively, like everything, all the happy ending of Discovery is all just laid waste. You know, Seven of Nine and her multi-year arc of going from this highly logical but emotionally dysfunctional Borg thing into you know more of a fleshed-out person. You no. mean Voyager? The yeah, happy yeah, ending Voyager. of Voyager, not Discovery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, but you know, Seven of Nine's arc is is all for nothing. You know. She's she's not this fully realized person anymore. No, she's just this vengeance driven, you know, revenge machine. And uh, she's bitter and angry 
whatever she had with Chakotay uh, didn't work out or he's dead or who knows what. Icheb, you know, her her protege, uh, her her adopted son, we get to see him tortured and murdered just to give her a reason to go on a revenge kick. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, what mm-hmm. the? F- yeah, Matt. Matt's. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I just hated that. I yeah, so yeah. hated Picard. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, I, I didn't. I, I found it very hard to some, some of it, some of it landed. Uh, but as you say, I think it had major problems. Um, um, and, and Patrick uh, Stewart, he's a brilliant actor. I love him as an actor, but he's yeah. not. He's not a behind the scenes guy. Don't let him write the show. <laughs> That's a great uh, way to put it. That's a great way to put it. Um, for the writer's room, deliver the script to him. Say, Sir Patrick, yeah. we've worked very hard to give you these wonderful Picard speeches. Yeah, please Enjoy. now, please. please please recite them for us. <laughs> yes. <laughs> very good. KMO, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show. Um, is there any kind of um, social media connections you'd like people to know about before we wrap up today? Uh, ways to follow you, ways to support you. Um, ways to keep up with you? Well, I, in addition to being a podcaster, I'm also a cartoonist. I write and draw a weekly webcomic called Geb. It's G-E-B-B. And you can find that at geb.io. And I post some sort of artwork to Instagram most days. So um, I could spell out my Instagram, but it'd probably be easier for you to just to post a link to it. Um, so listen, KMO, I've really enjoyed this conversation today. Thank you very much for coming on. I hope it was rewarding for you. I hope this will be the first of many uh, appearances from you on this show, uh, because I think uh, we, we, we have a we, we have a good uh, back and forth here. I very much enjoy your takes and uh, I think uh, it's productive. Uh, I, th- I think I think the disagreements we have are productive and. And uh, I think uh, our, our general sort of alignment of worldviews is, is is interesting, especially given that we're kind of starting from such different premises. <laughs> I, I hope ultimately to be able to persuade you that 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 communism does not have an endless series of barbaric genocides uh, oh, oh, uh, to 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 say for, to speak for itself. Um, but um, uh, but that's for another day's conversation. Uh, in the meantime, uh, KMO, would you like to sign off? Well, I would love to talk to you about Battlestar Galactica someday. We will do that. Why don't we do that someday? I, 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 I may be just the man for the job. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know. And your book is very expensive on Amazon. I oh, we say. can probably get you. Um, th- that, that's because they only ever did um, a hardbound volume. There are paperback versions around, but they were only made in a very limited run. I think there is a Kindle version. But hey, we're friends here. If you need a... If you need a, a, a PDF version or a proofs version, I can probably hook you up. Hook me up, brother. I never said that. This conversation never took place and I was never here. All right. <laughs> Will you do me a favor and say, my name is KMO and I have finished speaking? My name is KMO and I am finished speaking. My name is Nicholas Kiersey and I am also finished speaking. Uh, thanks, friends, for joining us. I know it's been um, a kind of uh, a, a, a long, dry spell here on Fully Automated. We haven't done a, an episode since we had uh, Daniel Dudney on back in February. Uh, but all of that's changing uh, in the uh, this summer anyway. Um we have a number of episodes in the can that are coming up 
in the offing. And uh, you can expect to hear more from me and from Fully Automated again in the coming weeks. Uh, thanks to KMO for helping us break our dry spell here. And uh, I'm very much looking forward to bringing you on upcoming episodes, a uh, group discussion with um, Chairman Mao, you know, the uh, the the uh, Columbus uh, Reading Collective that we've had on this show before, Chairman Mo, I should say. Uh, they'll be talking with us about uh, uh, Adam Curtis's uh, recent documentary, Can't Get You Out of My Head. Then we have a panel session uh, uh, which is a recording of a book launch event that we had here at uh, my university, University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley, on Clyde Barrow's book about the lumpen proletariat. Uh, so uh, all that and more to look forward to in the coming uh, weeks. We also, I haven't recorded it yet, but I will be doing an episode with uh, Christine uh, Diet Sully uh, on her uh, book about identity politics as conservatism. So that's something to look forward to um, later in the summer. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care.